This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to Money and Markets, the podcast from AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Hello, I'm Dan Hewson and joining me is Dan Coatesworth. We've got a special episode this week talking to the heads of three companies in the travel, pub and retail sectors about how trading has been since the recent lifting of trading restrictions. Julia Lobu Said from Advantage Travel Partnership has just been to Portugal and she's going to tell us how the travel industry is faring under the new traffic light system. Dan's had the awful job of propping himself up at the bar, ready to talk to Patrick Dardis from pub operator Young's about his views on a potential summer blockbuster. And I'll also be talking to Dash Gupta from Marshall Motors about the challenges of selling cars during the pandemic and how a semiconductor shortage is affecting the automotive industry. First up, though, we're going to start with M&S. Figures out, Dan. It seems like it's always a bit of a tale of two halves with M&S. How's it performed? Yeah, yeah, it's always the same. Food brilliant, clothing rubbish. And uh, in, in true M&S style, that's still the same thing. And also, uh, they're, they're still banging the drum about being um, you know, the great turnaround. This is the longest turnaround ever <laughs> in the history of UK business. So, um, you know, earnings have been hit in the pandemic. So they're reporting earnings to the end of, um, end of March or start of April. So I don't think anyone can be surprised by that. You know, clothing sales have really struggled you just think that, you know, if you're working from home, you don't really need to order a suit, you know, formal wear. There's no need for it. Um, so really now the business has had a hard look and thinking, OK, what what do we have to focus on in the future? And they're sort of pinning their hopes on athleisure, smart, casual clothes for people who do actually go back into the office and actually expanding their children's clothing range. So, I mean, that kind of kind of makes sense. But to me, that puts them much more in direct competition with Next um, who is actually you know, one step ahead because it's already selling third-party products as well as its own online. So that g- g- gives customers a much greater choice. But, you know, M&S is just having to look and say, um, you know, we're, we're going to try harder with clothing. Food is already going great. And now they're looking at overhauling their store estate. So they're, they're potentially going to take on some multiple sites vacated by Debenhams, uh, but they also might close down some of its other existing stores. So, um, yeah, it's the same old stuff, really, with M&S. It, it, tr- they try hard, but it's extremely hard to turn around to sort of a juggernaut of such a retail business. They just seem to get the clothing wrong all the time. I mean, we've been talking about M&S and trying to really attract new customers and they just get it wrong. I remember the great jeans debacle a couple of years ago and uh, yeah, they really fell on the wrong side of that one. Um, While this episode is mainly focused on reopening and the trade around that, we just can't ignore the flood of takeover offices. Yeah, takeovers are really picking up in the UK and it's kind of a sign that the UK stock market has been cheap, but there's now much greater confidence in the economy. So I remember late last year talking to some fund managers and they had got some sort of signals that lots of private equity companies have been doing their homework on many companies on the UK stock market. So uh, it was described to me that they had all their sort of files already on the shelves and they were just waiting for this Brexit trade deal to happen or not with the EU. So last December, we got 
that trade deal, and it gave us increased confidence about sort of the lay of the land going forward. So obviously now with the vaccines being rolled out and you know, greater confidence about not just the UK economy but globally, it's time for deals to be done. So uh, we've just seen Vectura and Spire Healthcare receive bids. The other day we had one for UDG Healthcare. We've had St Modwin, the property company. AA, you know, William Hills just um, you know is leaving the stock market. RSA is the same thing as well. They've all been taken over, and all of these deals happening post COVID. But to me, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm a shareholder and the, the bid is paying twenty or thirty percent above market price, well, that give you a nice sort of quick instant hit, and you know, you're, you're getting sort of um, a nice little reward. But a takeover also removes the chance for you to make future returns from a company. So if you look at something like Spire, G4S and AA, uh, and even TalkTalk, you know, these are all examples of companies that have disappointed investors over the years. So for them to receive a takeover offer is, is probably the, the best thing for them. But something like UDG has been a great investment for nearly 10 years. And actually, you know, if you, if you see it being removed from your portfolio because it's now going to be taken over, but, you know, it's it's you're losing future returns, and so I think it's very important to to look at it from both sides of the story here. You were saying that they're paying over market price, but there's a lot of discussion about the fact that UK markets are relatively cheap at the moment, which is why they're so attractive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been said for a while, but lots of um, you know international investors haven't been interested in UK for ever since um, the Brexit referendum vote 2016. Now that things seem to be sorting some sorting themselves out, they're a bit more interested. But yes, they are. You know, UK stocks are cheap, particularly relative to to say on in the US uh, market. But um, it, you know, it's. It's, we're going through a cycle where we're going to see lots of um, companies that perhaps have been struggling but might be do better under a different owner. They're going to be taken out. Um, but also, don't forget, we're seeing lots of new things. And, and I saw some indicative numbers for what might be going into the FTSE 250 uh, at the next sort of reshuffle. This is an index of UK mid-cap companies. And three of those names are all new additions to the stock market in recent months. So, um, you know, it's, it's out with the old and in with the new. Fascinating time to be watching the stock market. Um, it's time to bring on our first guests as we dive into three different sectors to see how they've been coping now that lockdown restrictions are being eased. Julia Labou Said is the chief executive of Advantage Travel Partnership, the UK's largest independent travel agent group. She was straight on a plane, lucky girl, as soon as the government said that we could travel again. Julia, you have just come back from Portugal. You must have been about the first person on a plane, were you? I was, well, I was on the first flight out of Luton um, last Monday. So really wanted to go out there on the first day that international travel resumed to really experience the full end-to-end process, obviously with the testing. And, and I've not travelled. I've not actually stepped foot on the plane for over a year now. So I just wanted to see myself what that was like so I could really speak with authority about the whole process how did you find it I I I clearly booked through a travel agent so my travel agent kind of guided me all the way through um the, the most stressful part because it was a last minute trip was making sure that I had all the testing and all the documentation that I needed to have in advance and on time um, but once I got my test done, once my results came in and once I was there, 
Um, and what actually from from the minute you step foot on the plane, you don't feel any doesn't feel any different other than we have to wear masks. But as I keep saying to everybody, we've we've become accustomed to wearing masks, walking around the shops and so forth now. So it really did not feel any different at all. And it's a huge milestone for the travel industry, even if maybe it's not quite the leap that they were hoping for, because it's not sustainable on just what is effectively one country for that summer holiday. No, absolutely right. So I, I think when um, when our transport secretary advised us of the of the list on, on that Thursday evening, um, I think all of us were, particularly in the industry, but consumers and travellers as well, very disappointed. Um, so you're absolutely right. You know, the industry in itself cannot survive with a um, handful. Obviously, Portugal is a mainstream destination. Gibraltar is on there as well. Um, um, and Madeira is obviously one of the islands of Portugal, slightly different rules there. But, um, you know, it's not sustainable at all. And, you know, to ensure that the industry has a chance of having at least a summer, we absolutely need more mainstream destinations and and business routes such as the USA to fall on the list at the next review period. Are you confident that there will be more destinations because, it's clear that there's pent up demand. People want to go away, but there's been a lot of confusion about whether they can, whether they can't, what sort of restrictions might be in place when they get back or when they get there. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of confusion. And uh, as we've seen right the way through, the different messages from our various ministers really don't help with confusion. I think I think we've all got used to now needing to know what the rules are. Let's be very clear. It could be very, it could be open to, to misinterpretation. There's a lot of ambiguity. So when it comes to travel, we need real clarity. Um, so you're, you're, you know, that you're absolutely right. There is pent up demands. We know that, you know, you know, travelers are really eager to travel, whether it's to visit friends or family. Businesses are really reliant on it. Um, but am I confident that we are going to get more destinations, mainstream, what I call mainstream destinations on the list this time round at the first review? You know, I'm not, to be honest, I'm really not from all the indications that we're seeing. I think we should see movement um, by the end of the um, next review period, which is the end of June. I'm not very confident of this first one. Um, I think also, um, you know, a number of countries are closing their borders on us. So let, let alone what are the rules for coming back from one of those destinations. But, you know, we are seeing, uh, you know, Germany, France um, closing their closing the borders on us as well on Brits. So I think it's um, it's a, a really confused and very challenging time right now. For the places that British travellers can go to that are on the green list or even some on the amber list where they are, saying that they will allow British tourists to come, even though the advice is you shouldn't really be travelling for a holiday. What are prices looking like? Because there can't be huge, huge amounts of availability. Um, we're seeing the airlines putting on more capacity. So we are. We saw um, a number of the airlines put more capacity on for Spain um, for the summer months, and, and that's starting to increase. Um, you have airlines like Jet2, whose programme actually is not starting until June. I think it's the 23rd of June. So um, pricing is pricing is not too bad right now. I mean, clearly it's supply and demand that that you know that that, that dictate the price points. Um, but it really isn't too bad. And, and we've seen some swings as you would in sort of peak summer holidays for, for school, you know, school holidays. But um, around then, you know, as the capacity increases, as we start to 
understand what the demand's like. Um, I think we we will start to see that um, plateau out, but but it's it's the economics of supply and demand, Danny. So I think you know at some point we we will see at certain times you know slightly higher pricing than than others. And some of these companies you were talking about, Jet Two, there. I mean, they made the decision that with all the uncertainty, they were just going to go with that June date, and that was that. But it's been over a year, and they've been hemorrhaging money. What kind of an industry will emerge when we finally, fingers crossed, get back to some kind of normal? I think the industry has always been very good at reinventing itself and being very entrepreneurial. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure the government look at the industry and say, well, they'll, you know, people will always want to travel when we're on an island. So if they, if they take a bit of a battering now, they, they will reemerge at some point. But 14 months later, and, you know, the industry has been decimated, you know, there are businesses that are, you know, clearly, you know, having it, finding it very difficult to, to kind of get through, you know, cash is at an all time low. Um, so, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, these businesses are able to trade their way through the crisis. Um, but it will be a different business. There are there are less there are less um, companies now. There are less, less travel agents than there were 14 months ago, less tour operators. Um, but yeah, the industry will reinvent itself and, and we survive on confidence. So as as and when confidence resumes, the industry will, you know, will do a you know really great job of making sure they can meet customer demands. So I'm still keeping my fingers crossed for an overseas summer holiday. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that investors seem to be fairly upbeat that some airlines are going to actually be flying people in the coming months, despite there being these sort of amber red light restrictions which are sort of currently blocking locations but if you just look at sort of the, the share price performance of um, some of these airlines it, they're probably doing a bit better than you might expect considering that um, you know we, we're, we're sitting here grumbling saying we really want to go um, but you know most locations of choice are, are, are sort of off out of bounds at the moment but um, British Airways owner IAG is up nearly 27% on the stock market this year. EasyJet's up 20%. Um, you know, and Carnival, the cruise company, is up 25%. So, uh, uh, and in contrast, there's a, the airline Jet2 is down by 3%. I think these figures are slightly odd. I would almost expect the reverse. The IAG potentially going to be hit by um, you know, structural challenge to business travel because if, if you're if you're you know working for a big office and you used to go and hop on a plane for an hour's meeting to Europe or, or Asia or, or even the US you're just going to use conferencing systems like Zoom website web conferencing systems but you know Jet2 is actually picking up market share financially strong business but um, you know at the moment it seems to be out of favor investors just because of its it can't fly to its um, sort of the core destinations it normally goes to. But you know, what's to say that might change in the next few months? I think it said it wasn't going to fly until um, a specific date as well, which obviously threw investors hoping they might see returns start as soon as flying started again. Um, not just travel companies, of course, hoping to be big winners as the economy really reopens. And I think that investors might have had quite a good weekend, Dan, because on Monday morning, we saw a lot of gains. It seemed like everyone had been to the pub or the cinema or a restaurant or something like that. And it sort of changed people's state of mind. And when you had a look um, in terms of figures, 
And I looked from the close of play on Friday up until yesterday, and some really big games being had. So the biggest uh, winner was the rank group, of course, uh, owned things like bingo halls. They were up 11.8% just over a couple of days. Cineworld, they had a really strong opening weekend in the UK, apparently, Peter Rabbit, The Runaway, was uh, something that really brought people back in. And also, I think, because it was raining and everyone just wanted to be able to do something with the kids. Well, they were up 7.3%. We had the restaurant group also talking about really good trading figures, up 5.2%. The gym group, up 9.6% as people, you know, flooded back to try and actually work out among friends to use the equipment once again. And we also had uh, Whitbread up 2.23%. There is still lots of concern about the amount of debt some of these companies have. And, And as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, we're mulling over the news that the bar chain revolution and Magna's cider maker C&C have tapped shareholders for funding in an attempt, obviously, to try and shore up COVID hit balance sheets. Now, C&G, which also makes Bulmers and Tenants Lager, announced a £151 million rights issue. They're looking to reduce the group's leverage and provide sufficient liquidity just in case, obviously, we see any more issues coming up in relation to COVID. And Revolution, which runs over 60 bars nationwide and has shut six sites since the pandemic hit, said it had raised £21 million via a share placing subject to approvals. So there are still lots of questions about exactly how much money these companies can make when they're still having to use social distancing. Uh, And I know, talking of pubs, that Young's had some good figures out the other day showing that its customers have actually been happy to sit in the freezing cold drinking pints. Let's bring on our next guest, which is Young's CEO, Patrick Dardis. So, Patrick, you're able to open 144 pubs on the 12th of April, when lockdown restrictions eased and pubs could serve outdoors. So I see that you managed 85% of normal trading since then. So I think you must be very pleased with that number. Yeah, I mean, if you take those 144 pubs that were open purely without side from the 12th of, of, of April and compare the same 144 pubs back in 2019, fully trading, indoors and outdoors, hotels open, we actually achieved 97% of that number. So on a core like for like, those 144 pubs versus the same 144 pubs in 2019, we nearly hit the normal trading numbers. So it, it, it and as all that does is just confirm the pent up demand um, from our loyal customers to come back into Young's pubs. Yeah. So obviously now all the pubs are open. We can go inside. I know it's only been a few days since the rules changed, but what's trading being like for Young's now that you know, people can go where and sit wherever they want? We so um, the for so Monday was obviously the first day in which we did that, and unfortunately Monday Tuesday the weather was horrible. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, but so they could go indoors, but it's actually getting them out of the houses. Uh, is, is is it was the problem? So uh, it was a, an uplift on the previous week, uh, but then yesterday it rained, um, but actually the evening became quite sunny, and we saw the true uplift uh, in. So we saw about a thirty percent uplift 
um, on on that. Um, and the bookings, more importantly, we always knew that the pickup and trade would kick in on Thursday, Friday, and particularly Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and there is no doubt the bookings are significant early up on um, on the previous five weeks. So, yeah, the, the, the demand is there. People are not being put off. Um, and I think we'll see the start of a very, very busy five-week period in the run-up to the 21st of June. Yeah. I, have you seen any sort of change in customer behaviour? I wondered, since the 12th of April, whether the customers returning to pubs are ordering sort of different types of food and drink than perhaps they did before, or whether there's more people coming on their own or, or, or sort of groups where possible? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a number of things uh, that, that have happened. I, and the one thing that really stands out to me, and it was the same back on the 20th of July last year when we opened, that how pleased the customers were. They did smiles on their faces, but how respectful they were. You know, they knew they had to check in. They couldn't go into the pub without being checking in. They were queuing, um, but they were so orderly and so well behaved. And at nighttime, when it was time to go, they were drifting away gradually. Um, um, and that was one thing that really stood out. In terms of, um, uh, of, of uh, purchasing behavior, interestingly, uh, where a huge proportion of our sales are going through the app, and what we're finding on the app, premium products, because you can see the full menu uh, on the app, was when you go up to a bar and order, you, you, you kind of you have to be impulsive and quick with what you want to order. But they browse even on the way to the pub. Um, so we've seen a, a 20% uplift in premium products. Um, and more uh, encouragingly, we've seen tips to staff virtually double uh, than 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 pre-COVID and pre-normal uh, pre or sorry pre, yeah normal ordering patterns pre-COVID nineteen, um, so there's definitely a premiumization that goes as well for wines and it certainly goes uh, for food and if you look at particularly gins we're selling a huge ver- variety of gins more so now than we did pre-COVID yeah well so, so did you manage to do anything during the lockdowns to actually improve your pubs or were you actually just trying to preserve as much cash as possible so there was no one actually doing anything um, you know, to, to sort of spruce yeah, up yeah, your, no, out, your outlets? That's a great question. And I mean, I think when, when we got to March last year, our first objective was to ensure we had enough cash to see us through 12 entire 12 months with pubs closure. So secure the future of the business that was born in 1831. So we did that by the end of April. Um, We then said, well, that's great. We're going to survive. We can tell our shareholders that. We can keep a hold of all our employees, all our colleagues. However, you know, we we will be in a cash conservation mode for potentially 18 months to two years. And that would be a, a shame given that we've invested so much money over the last 15 to 20 years. Hence, we did a share placing. Uh, which is something we obviously considered uh, fully uh, uh, before we did that. And we raised gross 88.4 million. And we said to everyone at the time, we will be investing this in our pubs. And true to our word, we started on the 20th of July when we could reopen again, we started investing in our pubs. So we invested in our pubs all the way through to the 12th of April. We invested best part of 19 million, of which 17 million, was in our own existing pubs, refurbishing them, uh, doing up our hotels. We also spent over a million pounds in creating more outside space 
um, anticipating uh, the, you know, when we did open, it would probably be only outdoors. Uh, so, no, and of course, with our strengthening balance sheet, it enabled us to do all of that. I'm, I don't know if anyone else was in a position uh, rather than conserving cash, but to start reinvesting. And as I said, we had reinvested quite aggressively. Uh, while the pubs were closed, we took the opportunity uh, to to invest in them. Yeah, I mean, th- there must be some pubs in the industry who are not going to survive this pandemic. Is is this your chance now to go out and start buying some acquisitions? You know, making acquisitions or you know, buying sort of select pubs that you've you've had a yarn for a while. Or? Yeah, well, we, we we it was also part of the share placing. We said we would invest in our existing estate. It would put us in a position to be able to con, con, to, to participate where the appropriate freehold acquisition came up. And we're certainly in that position now. Um, and I, I certainly, there is no pleasure in knowing that uh, until the 21st of June, there are thousands of individual pub owners and businesses just hanging on by their fingernails uh, because this has been brutal. Uh, and I certainly hope all of them survive. Uh, but like anything, uh, there will be casualties. And if the right opportunity comes up, uh, we will be there because we do have the firepower to 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 uh, drive growth through acquisitions. Yeah. So equally, there's a bit of news out saying that you're you're potentially looking to sell your tenanted estate. So what what's the thought behind that? Well, it's something that we've had on the review for, if I'm being honest, probably seven or eight years. Uh, and two and a half years ago, pre-pandemic. We looked at it as a desktop exercise with Savills to see whether we thought there'd be sufficient value, sufficient appetite. And at that stage, there was. Um, and during the pandemic, which shut down, we took the opportunity to have a strategic review. The uh, businesses we're talking about represents only 5% of our uh, group pub turnover. It was declining. Um, we, it, was a, a, it wasn't a growth arm for our business uh, yeah, and um, you know, so we decided that you know our focus should be on premium, differentiated, and individual pubs, um, and therefore, if this comes to fruition, and it may not do, it would allow us then to redirect capital we would normally spend on those pubs into the managed pubs. It would allow us to invest more in our existing managed pubs, and it would de- strengthen our balance sheet even further to give us more firepower if those opportunistic freehold opportunities came up. Yeah. And just just finally, it kind of looks like it's going to be a bit of a a staycation summer for people in the UK. Do you think that this could potentially be your best ever summer in terms of takings? I think if Freedom Day happens on the 21st of June, which I'm still optimistic that it will on the basis that hospitalizations are coming down and even in the hotspots, they're not growing. Um, And I think you're right. I think with the uh, staycations, the Euros 21 uh, kicking off in June, uh, the British Lines uh, kicking off at 5pm uh, in July. Um, yes, I do think it could be uh, the best summer we've had uh, ever. Brilliant. Patrick, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. It's interesting to hear someone so optimistic, Dan, about the outlook for the pub sector. How many times have you been to the pub recently? Well, not enough. (laughs) (laughs) I actually went and sat in a restaurant on Friday and it was a really peculiar experience for about five minutes and then it just felt normal. Um, But one thing that they are all having to deal with as well is 
a shortage of staff. So I spotted a, a story the other day and restaurant group Hawksmoor is actually offering bonuses of up to £2,000 to their workers if they can recommend friends for, for jobs because they've got such huge staffing shortages. And another chain's emailed customers with a promise of gift vouchers if they introduce candidates who go on to be hired by the firm. We've also had Marston's and Mitchell's and Butler's, the pub chain's, both warning that they were finding it hard to recruit workers and saying that they might have to pay more in terms of wages in order to try and get people through the doors. Obviously, we still got a lot of people on furlough at the moment. We don't know how all that is going to unwind. But it's not the only issue that could potentially push up prices. And I know inflation, we've spoken about, it seems like almost every week. And it's it's something that's not going to go away for a while, particularly because many sectors, particularly the construction industry, are having to deal at the moment with a materials shortage. So the Construction Leadership Council's warned that cement, some electrical components, timber, steel, and paints are all in short supply. And actually saying to people, you know, maybe if you can put off your do-it-yourself projects or your home improvements for a little while, because they will be facing delays and you might find that the cost is greater than it would be if you could delay it for a little while. Um, Now, it's a number of factors, obviously COVID, a big one, but also we've seen um, specific products being affected. So we've had warmer winter, which has affected timber production in Scandinavia, while perversely the cold weather in Texas has (laughs) affected the production of chemicals. And add to that, shipping costs. Shipping costs are affecting everything. Oh, I know. It does seem to be shortages across the board because the car sector has also seen disruption to production because of this ongoing shortage of computer chips. So let's bring on Dash Gupta from Marshall Motors as he knows a thing or two about juggling car inventories and making sure he's got the cars in stock that people want. So Dash, how has the pandemic change the way cars are sold i'm just wondering whether we're seeing any sort of temporary or actual permanent changes here so i think it's really hard to say what's whether what we're seeing is going to be permanent or not. i think uh, the reality is you know the ability for consumers to buy online has been around for many many years i've been in the industry 28 years and uh, I'm, I'm just about old enough to remember when the internet first came in in sort of in the mid 90s um, but you know whilst online uh, facilities have been there actually the number of people who've historically wanted to use um, the ability to buy online is very very small I mean it's not even one percent in the UK now of course last year what the pandemic did is it kind of forced consumers because our operations were closed to look at the means of uh, being able to pipe vehicles particularly as the vast majority of people who buy vehicles in this country are on a PCP so of course they're in an event driven transaction which means they have to renew at a particular point in time but of course if showrooms are closed how do you do that equally you know there's a consumer issue there but also there's an issue there for us in terms of a retailer so what we did last year is we made quite a number of changes to our online to our, our, our sort of physical infrastructure proposition so you can now order a vehicle online uh, without speaking to anybody put your credit card details you can order it from just 99 pound deposit um, and you know clearly we have seen an uplift in the number of people who are uh, buying and we did see a spike um, in terms of uh, the number of sales that we're doing there but again very very small numbers you know maybe two percent three percent max uh, but what's been interesting is since we've reopened our operations on april the 12th 
actually that number has started to come back down again as people, you know, I feel, believe, want to see, feel, touch, drive uh, a vehicle because it's a significant purchase. So whether this will be, um, you know, uh, long term or not remains to be seen, but um, I still fundamentally believe that, you know, it's a significant investment for people and they want to have that ability to go and see what they're buying. Yeah. So I know that lots of people will have saved a bit of money during the various lockdowns. Is this of any evidence that some of this cash is now being spent on buying cars? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I have to be honest, some of it, I think, is a little bit anecdotal. Um, it's, so it's difficult to sort of sit there and say, you know, is this specifically linked to, um, you know, sort of uh, savings that consumers have made during the lockdown period. But I do think um, there, there, is, there is no doubt that uh, customers are coming out and spending. And, you know, uh, I think that sort of reflected in the trading statement that we put out last week. Um, so there certainly is strong demand out there. Um, that's also... Uh, fueled by some of the challenges around supply shortages around semiconductors as well at the minute. Um, but certainly we are seeing the average sell price go up. So what we're seeing is customers may have typically spent, say, £350 a month on a vehicle. What they've been doing is because they've got a li little bit more liquidity, they are now sort of upgrading what they're, what they're buying and they're kind of treating themselves because, of course, they can't do foreign holidays, etc. So uh, we are seeing some evidence of that for sure. Yeah. And, and certainly, no, about a year ago, lots of people were talking about that they wanted to to buy a new car. They thought, actually, they're going to be working from home uh, a lot more in the future, or they were looking at ways to avoid having to get public transport to commute to work. I was just wondering if you think that those drivers for car sales might have been sort of short lived or actually they're still in place now? I think they're probably a bit more long term is my instinct. I mean, certainly, um, you know, if you look at the summer of last year, uh, it was fascinating. I know, I know there's been a sort of perception and possibly even a trend that uh, younger people, you know, are using sort of um, things such as Uber, et cetera, particularly in the big cities. But what's been interesting is um, in the summer of last year, there was a queue that was over 220,000 long to be able to get a driving test um, because, you know, I, I guess parents just didn't want their kids using public transport or, you know, um, sort of, right, you know, uber type and ride sharing type um mobility solutions so i think uh, there definitely was strong evidence of that last year uh, i do believe that will continue in uh certainly the short to medium term because you know the car is essentially a you know a, a sort of ppe bubble in many ways isn't it so um and i think if you've been on public transport recently as i, I did just the other day the first time i've been on a train for some time into london um you know the, the trains are quiet so i do think more and more people are going to make this uh, this move towards uh, purchasing vehicles. And certainly, as I said, you know, we are seeing strong demand. And as we indicated in our trading statement last week. Yeah, I was going to ask you just about current trading. I mean, obviously, showrooms are now open again. Have you seen um, sort of a, a change in uh, what, what's going on with you know customer behavior? And are things looking quite good since this sort of reopening? Yeah, we've had a really strong start to the year. I mean, we actually had a really, um, you know, a really good year last year. Uh, I mean, just to put that into perspective, we went into 2020 with a consensus number of 20 million. Clearly, we had uh, you know, a very challenging period through the first lockdown with our operations being closed. And in the first half of the year, we actually posted a 10 million pound loss. But we had massive pent up demand in the second half of the year. Uh, and uh, that led to us actually delivering a profit in the second half north of 30 million pounds. And we actually beat our original market forecast for 2020 and came in with a result of 21 million. So a fantastic result last year. The year started very strongly this year. So at our AGM statement on Thursday, we indicated that our operational KPIs were strong. So just to give you a sense of that, in the first 
four months of the year, the SMMT indicated that the market was up 8.4%, so strong growth there. But clearly, you know, on the back of softer comparisons last year as a result of the lockdown, but whilst the market was up 8.4%, Marshall was up 19.5%, so double digit ahead at 11.1%. And this, again, continues the track record that the group's had for many, many years of outperforming the market. Used cars to the end of April were up 42%, which was also exceptionally strong. Again, clearly flattered a little bit by the fact that uh, we had softer comparisons as a result of the April lockdown. So that strong performance actually uh, put us in a position where as a board, uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, we actually repaid uh, the furlough grant, uh, sorry, the furlough claim that we took um, this year. And also the retail grants as well, which, you know, collectively combined north of four million pounds. So very proud that as a company, we've been able to do that. And we, we clearly take our uh, corporate governance responsibilities very seriously. Um, and uh, also we upgraded our numbers by 23% to a profit of not less than our 2019 result, which is clearly a year that was unaffected. Uh, so that's 22.1 million pounds. And that's having paid that four million pounds or so i guess if you sort of factor that in it's more like a 40 north of 40 percent upgrade that we did announced on thursday so very strong yes i mean obviously th things going very well but you mentioned earlier about the computer chip shortages and we've certainly heard from lots of car manufacturers scaling back production do you think that um it's possible to put a time frame on when this might start to impact availability of cars in the uk and whether that's a sort of a threat to your uh, sort of future earnings well, uh, I think we have sort of called that out in our announcement last Thursday. So what we actually said is we were aware of um, the uh, shortages around semiconductors for our manufacturing partners. But what we said is uh, whilst we're cognizant of that, we still felt we would not make less than uh, the 2019 result of 22.1. So for us, really, we did sort of say there's a range of outcomes, but we said that's kind of a flaw. Um, so I think in terms of how long this will last, uh, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, clearly, this is a sort of global issue as a result of the pandemic, but it, and, and different manufacturers in different places. Some manufacturers that we deal with are saying they're not going to be affected. Some manufacturers are saying that there will be uh, material disruption. And I think uh, what that has done is, um, you know, in an, on an unprecedented scale, and we've seen that literally in the last 24 hours, we've seen um, the residual values for used cars shoot up so uh, unprecedented uh, in the last two months used car values have actually gone up by eight percent so actually from a customer perspective if you can get a new car uh, and there is supply out there uh, across a number of brands it's never been a better time to buy a car because of course your used car is going up in value and of course new retail prices are staying fixed so it's a great time to buy uh, from a customer perspective so we'll wait and see how long this chip shortage is uh, last for but um, you know, it, it, there's a lot to, uh, there's different manufacturers in different positions, so it's difficult to sort of get a full handle on what's going on. Brilliant. Well, Dash Gupta, CEO of Marshall Motors, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for the invite on the show. So many companies really having to just think on their feet, not just over the past year, but also as they come out into this recovery. But it is encouraging to see trading pick up, even though, as I say, lots of hurdles still to overcome. Uh, we've got time for one more thing. Jenny Owen is back with us with her regular lighthearted look at the world of money. And Jen, it's a doggy tale. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Um, I recently bought a dog who's been keeping me very busy. And as with any long term commitment, you have to weigh up the financial impact it'll have before making any big decisions. 
But a recent study has shown that pet insurance is currently more expensive than your own human health insurance. Money Supermarket compared the insurance of a French bulldog, which is a very popular breed in the UK, to a typical 12-month human health insurance policy. The dog's average cover costed £1,447 a year, and a typical annual human health policy came out at £1,151, which is £300 cheaper. And for younger customers, the difference is even bigger, with the human health insurance up to £600 less than the mutts. Of course, it pays to shop around and do your research, and that's when I started thinking about what the most expensive dog in the world would look like. After a bit of digging, I found that a whopping $1.95 million was paid for a Tibetan Mastiff in China in 2014. Reportedly, the pup had lion's blood in its ancestry, so you can imagine how big and fluffy it is. Now, if you're going to get the world's most expensive pup, you'll probably be needing the matching collar. The Amour Amour Diamond Collar, uh, which is a 52-carat accessory, houses 1,600 diamonds and costs a mind-boggling $3.2 million. Now, those are some mighty pampered pooches. (laughs) That's a crazy amount. I must admit, I have bought... Um, a couple of raincoats for the dog Mm. but so far I have not given in to the desire to buy hats and things like that because I really don't think Biscuit would like it and no diamonds not yet no diamonds no (laughs) how about you Dan have you invested in diamonds for your dog no, well, I have three cats and um, they they need feeding and nothing else. So <laughs> mm. um, it's it, yeah, if you're looking to save money, get a cat. So um, that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show because I'll be talking to the manager of Amati Strategic Metals Fund about why copper and other commodity prices have been soaring and why there could be a shock just around the corner. So catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.